This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In this episode, I talk with Lori Cameron, the National Geographic author of the best-selling book, The Mindful Day, Practical Ways to Find Focus, Calm, and Joy for Morning to Evening. Her book is designed for busy professionals looking to integrate mindfulness into their daily lives. This ultimate guide draws on contemplative practice, modern neuroscience, and positive psychology to bring peace and focus to the home, the workplace, and beyond. In this enriching book, Lori draws upon her extensive training and 20-year mindfulness meditation practice to show readers how to seamlessly weave mindfulness and compassion into daily life. Offering timeless teachings, compelling science, and straightforward exercises designed for busy individuals, Lori shows how mindfulness practice can help you navigate life's complexity with mastery, clarity, and ease. Her practical wisdom and concrete how-to steps will help you make the most of the present moment, creating a roadmap for inner peace and a life of deeper purpose and joy. Lori is a student of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh for over 25 years. She is the founder and CEO of Purpose Blue Mindful Leadership, where she integrates emotional intelligence, positive psychology, mindfulness, compassion, and neuroscience into practical strategies for flourishing. Lori is also the author of Audible's Power of Self-Compassion, and has a new 50-day course featured on Insight Timer. Formerly an Accenture Change Leader, Lori is a keynote and TEDx speaker in the United States, Europe, and Asia. She's a professor of mindful leadership at the R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland, a senior fellow at the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University, a senior mindfulness teacher at the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, and a certified meditation teacher with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. She serves on the board of directors for the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., and lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland. For more information, you can visit her website at Lori J. Cameron, that's L-A-U-R-I-E-J Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N. And for more about Purpose Blue, please visit PurposeBlue.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel. And today, I'm very excited to talk with Lori Cameron about her book, The Mindful Day. Thanks for being here, Lori. It's lovely to be here with you, Elizabeth. So 
I wonder if we could start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in mindfulness. Uh, thanks, I'd love to. Um, it really started uh, with my mother. My mom um, was a really beautiful example of contemplative living. And the way that she did that looks somewhat different than the way I do it now. Um, but she was a really devoted churchgoer and had me in church um, growing up three times a week, if you can believe it, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night prayer meeting. And as I was in high school and college, I, I really grew away. I became kind of disillusioned from some of the teachings in that tradition. But um, later, I started to really appreciate the, the routines and the habits and the practices, although we didn't use that word then, that were just infused in my way of living. And by that, I mean um, uh, prayer, you know, sitting in stillness, um, taking walks, singing, um, uh, stopping before eating and, and expressing gratitude, um, sending wishes and good intentions outward for people that we love and people that we don't know. And so later, as I started to think back about that foundation, I realized that my mother taught me many of the things that I've now learned from a variety of contemplative traditions. So it really started with mom. Um, and then um, as I was, was growing up, I was in high school, I lost my dad suddenly. Um, I was, uh, it was a Saturday morning. I was getting ready to go to a football game. I was a cheerleader then. And I was with my dad and he suddenly um, started experiencing chest pain. And I also was a Girl Scout. So I knew CPR. I was a CPR instructor actually in the state of Maryland. So I, I followed him to, into his den and, and he sat in his chair that belonged to my grandfather. We're very into tradition, which is also part of what I do. And he started to um, lean back and, you know, he said rapid heartbeat and he had a massive heart attack. And I tried to apply CPR and, and save him. Uh, but later at the hospital, they told me he didn't survive. My dad was 44 and I was 16. And in that moment, in that period of my life, I, I suddenly, you know, was really deeply um, aware of the impermanence of life, of how one minute you're here and the next minute, you know, there's your den with all your things in it. He was a rocket scientist at NASA, so he had model rockets and the Elton John Rocket Man 45 hung on his wood paneled wall that we gave him for Father's Day. So, you know, walking back into that room that evening and just seeing everything there and he was no longer with us was really powerful for me. So I started becoming really interested in um, what, you know, kind of the, the psychology of, of human beings and, and, and what makes us feel well and what makes us suffer. And in my own journey from then on, um, there were five kids in my family. I've actually went on and, and, and lost two brothers. So after losing my dad, uh, at 44, I lost two brothers in their 30s, and I lost the brothers to um, alcohol. 
And so I started, and, and then I, I, you know, while they're struggling with uh, self-medicating, I um, went on to have a very successful career and joined Accenture as a management consultant focusing on the human side of business and lived around the world in three continents and really had a, had a successful life according to outside metrics of what success looks like. Um, and then I, I was very, you know, I, I was really deeply in the inquiry of why do some people thrive and other people not, you know, what, what are the deep components of resilience and well-being? So that became my life's work. And so for 35 years, I've, I've, I've been in the, in the study of human flourishing and human development and, and, uh, and, and thriving. And, and along the way, while I was working at Accenture, living out in California, I was uh, striving really hard. I was a new manager and I was um, on a big technical project that you know, was millions of dollars and took a year. And I was under a lot of pressure. And my client uh, was a um, Vietnamese engineer. She'd come over um, as a young woman to this country and uh, got a you know really great job and worked very hard in the energy industry. And she was my counterpart. We come from very different backgrounds, and she could see how hard I was working and the the stress I was under and my my need for achievement and to do well and to please and to make everything okay, which at the time I didn't really understand. I just thought I was a hard worker, but she could see that, you know, I was really, that was my, my white knuckling. It was the way I was coping with that, that challenging um, childhood I had. So she asked me one day if I had heard of mindfulness and this was 25 years ago. And I said, mindfulness, you know, no, I'm from Maryland. You know, we don't have that there. <laughs> so she, I said, what is that? And she said, you know, mindfulness gives us the ability to, to witness our experience real time, to see our, our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings as they're arising while they're happening so that we can create some space some spaciousness around that experience and, and take, a, take a step back, if you will, so that we can meet the moment with kindness, with loving awareness. And I thought, okay, I've never heard of this, but how do you do that? And so she taught me simply to, to focus on my breath. She really, she really started with a, a, very, a very simple step of bringing attention to my breath, noticing the inhale, uh, noticing the exhale. And when my mind wandered or got distracted, which in those days it was racing, you know, I was Maryland girl living in San Francisco, having a, you know, wonderful but challenging job. But my mind was always racing. So she taught me to just allow, you know, when the mind wandered, I got distracted to simply notice that with kindness and bring my attention back and begin again. So I started to learn and she blocked a conference room uh, there at this big company every Monday at 12 noon and invited me and anyone else who wanted to attend to come and learn to breathe. She didn't even use the word meditation. And she, I don't think she used the word mindfulness 
you know, publicly on that conference room reservation board, but she was teaching us mindfulness. And then she gave me a book in that first month, a book from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master and poet. And the book is called Pieces Every Step. I still treasure that book. And, and I thought, then I started to deepen my understanding of mindfulness. And I started to understand, like, you know, what, what does that mean, peace is every step? Like, what, is, what does that mean, peace? And what is inner peace? And, and I started to go beyond understanding mindfulness as a way to access the calm serenity that's available in me at any time, which was kind of my first step, which was absolutely transformational and already an amazing life-changing experience. But I started to realize I could harness my attention when I'm under a lot of pressure. I could bring it to a single point and, and drop into my heart, um, that I could start to identify the patterns in my mind, the way I think and see the world, how I make meaning of things. I started to later down the road be aware of this inner voice in my head, uh, which was often, um, you know, harsh. I, I kind of, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that this soundtrack in my head was kind of beating myself up all the time. And I, resulting in me feeling always kind of at, at always un, in a state of unease, you know, just not feeling like no matter how hard I worked, I, I would still feel like I'm not doing enough. So these are powerful things that rob us of, of happiness and well-being. And at the same time, I, I, was, I was very much carrying this idea that life is short because of losing dad and Mark and Johnny. And I, I thought, wait a minute, you know, I, I had a sense of like, I got to live. I'm still here. And I'm, um, I'm having kind of, you know, day-to-day feelings of, of stress or not feeling well. And I was really curious about how to shift that. So mindfulness was the way that I actually increased my capacity to be with whatever came. And that's really the beginning of that journey. I started practicing in the monasteries of Thich Nhat Hanh around the U.S. and in France, living among the monastics, among the nuns and monks. And Thich Nhat Hanh's goal was to create community so that lay people like you and I could live with nuns and monks. Imagine that. And I've never been to another, been to a lot of mindfulness retreats, a lot of meditation retreats. I've never experienced that again in my life where, and I still go to those. Well, I will when we're allowed to travel again. But the idea was that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm chopping carrots, you know, side by side with nuns and monks. I'm, I'm meditating at, at dawn with, with nuns and monks. I'm getting my vegan breakfast in the morning and going out and sitting by a lotus pond. And they have those at these monasteries, whether it's France or Mississippi. And singing. We do a lot of singing. We do a lot of poetry in that tradition. And it's, it, it takes me a couple days to kind of recalibrate my nervous system and relax and, and really um, pick up the field of energy and love and presence that's available when you're living among these, these beautiful people that practice full-time for their whole life. So that journey of decades of going to these 
practicing with nuns and monks really taught me deeply that mindfulness doesn't have to be something you you do in a meditation studio, which they didn't even exist then, but um, that you sit on a cushion in your living room in the morning for 20 minutes, but it's actually the, it's a way of living. It's a way of, of integrating practices into the things that you already do each day. So that's, that's, that's a big part of my journey was my mom, um, the loss and being introduced to Thich Nhat Hanh and that tradition 25 years ago. Amazing. I, I made so many little notes here to things to ask you about. How did you go from your job though, that, that's a, that big shift from being introduced to it at work from this client to the monastery? What did you just leave your job and, and go there or how did that happen? So, um, the beautiful thing is that um, I didn't have to make a big shift necessarily. Um, that that in this tradition, they open the monasteries to lay people in the summer, in particular. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, but they also do that in the at in the end of the year in December and a few other times. So just like a lot of people might choose to go to a sandals resort on the beach you know, all you can eat and drink for a week. Um, I realized that the nourishment that I needed was, was a different kind of nourishment. So my vacations would be these monasteries and I would block time and go there. And then when my daughter, when my daughter was three, she did, I took her to a weekend retreat with these monastics um, in the Russian, Russian River Valley in California. And then when she was seven, I took her on her first week-long um, mindfulness retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh and the monastics. And that was phenomenal. So, and then she went, uh, when I turned 50, my wish for turning 50 was to go to Plum Village, uh, where the home of Thich Nhat Hanh. And I took Ava Grace, my daughter. And so now she's a, you know, 13. So she's just kind of, I'm bringing her along. So I, it wasn't something that I did separate from my work or my family, um, I was able to, to do it with them, which was really great. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. So you reference, you know, going to Sandals. This is sort of the vacation you would go for. And I think if when people go to Sandals, they love the idea of immersing themselves in, you know, vacation mode, you know, the beach or the pool and, you know, sort of partying, letting, letting go. I, as you were talking, I was thinking there might be a listener who said, why would you want to go and hang out with the nuns and, <laughs> or monks? And you somewhat answered it, but if you, if you would just say a little bit more about it, you, you went on to say that it takes a while to sort of start to get into and, and be able to benefit from that field of love and energy that you pick up on. Yeah. So like, why, so, why do you go, want to go there on vacation? Yeah. And so first of all, I'll say I've never been to a sandals resort, but I do love 
swimming and sun and a glass, a cold glass of rosé in the afternoon and dancing. And I still enjoy so much all of these pleasures, the sun on my skin. Um, yesterday I spent an evening uh, watching the sunset over the memorials in Washington, D.C. You know, I just, I love beauty. I love peace. I love fun and dancing and laughter. Um, but you know, the, this, I can bring in the work of Martin Seligman now, the father of positive psychology, whom I have integrated a lot of his work in my, in my book, as I do in all my classes and teaching. So Martin noticed that, um, so he's, you know, he's clinically depressed his whole life, this brilliant man. And he said, you know what, I'm not interested in studying what makes people sad and miserable. I want to know what makes people thrive. And he noticed that there's kind of three types of happy lives. There's the pleasant life and that's the, you know, the dancing, you know, cracking into creme brulee at a restaurant in Paris, stepping into a new car, you know, putting on a new outfit, moving into a new house, getting a new sofa, whatever. These, these moments of pleasure that do bring us pleasure. They do feel good, but positive emotion habituates. And when we can, learn deeper ways of engagement and meaning that 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 Seligman notices notice that people that live lives of engagement where our strengths and our <clears throat> sorry our capacity for uh, discipline and and getting into a full state of presence and flow when we're able to do that then our sense of fulfillment and joy and happiness is deeper and then it's even deeper when we can apply that to a life of purpose and meaning. So I noticed that if I would spend a week at the beach, which I love and I can't wait to go back, um, that I, it would be great. I would have fun. I love swimming. I love getting my tan on. Um, but if I spent a week at a monastery where I was sitting with others, meeting myself in stillness, um, offering inner compassion, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, self-compassion, love to myself, singing, chanting with these beautiful nuns and monks, um, arising at sunrise, like the routine of it all. There was a deep sense of joy and happiness and well-being that not only occurred while I was there, but it would sustain me for six, nine months so that the, the the longevity of the joy was longer than um, a great night out on a, you know, at the beach, for example. So that's what I started noticing. I also um, was learning. So while I was there, it was space out of my everyday life to go deeper. And there's usually themes at these monasteries. So one in particular was, was one about, um, connecting with our ancestors and healing. And I did these beautiful practices where I uh, was led through the whole week with different talks. They're called Dharma talks. They're teaching the uh, universal truth or contemplative wisdom. And, and, and being engaged in small group discussions and meditations that helped me get in touch with my father and his way of being and the, and this one practice, I was in a beautiful meditation hall in, um, in Plum Village in France. And 
I, I did this, I was guided through this practice that involved, you know, falling to my knees and bending over and then standing up repeatedly. And I was repeatedly getting in touch with the habits and ways of being about with my father that he embodied that were hurtful to me. And I'd never went there my whole life. So I lost him when I was 16 and I never got in touch with that. And then we went through the whole same similar um, set of practices, inviting me to get in touch with all the wonderful, beneficial qualities of my dad that I that live on in me. So there was a there was a recognition, acknowledgement, and a letting go of the painful parts, and then an inviting in and acknowledgement of the beneficial parts, and then um, it was you know incredibly powerful as you can imagine. And then uh, I was also, and then we did this for my mother too. So, you know, it was a week, right? So, and then at the end, there was just beautiful um, ceremonies and rituals. And one involved me writing a letter to my mother and a letter to my father and leaving them on this beautiful altar, you know, covered with flowers and beautiful objects. And that was very, very healing. And so these are also the kind of things that happen at the at a monastery or at these monasteries, and the 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 lightness, the freedom, the inner peace, the joy. You know, when I left, when I got on the airplane to come home, I was very transformed and healed in many levels, and my connection to my family and my ancestors was stronger and more healthy. So. You know, after experiencing that, you know, I just couldn't wait to get back to the next one. I think you're touching on something really powerful that, you know, there's so much that we're trying to avoid, you know, things that just go unattended to that just linger and make it hard for us to really enjoy what we have for very long. I mean, we can enjoy it, but it doesn't stick. So I want to talk. I want you to talk a little bit about your book because what you've done in the book is taken concepts that now you're alluding to or you're describing and grounded it in things people can do and structured the book in a way that, you know, takes you through your day and showing people where all the opportunities lie, I mean, even the practice, the stop practice and things like that. Because I think, and I struggled myself with that, like it doesn't sound, and none of this sounds very practical when you talk about, you know, you're going to learn how to observe and create spaciousness. Like, yeah. What does that mean? Right. What does that mean? Um, and Pieces Every Step is one of my favorite books. So I know what you mean, but even that book is sort of abstract. Right. And what you've done is you've compiled, you know, a lot of these concepts in, in a more, I guess, would you say structured way or grounded way? Grounded, accessible. Um, so Thank you for that question. Um, I have a lot of teachers that I that are so powerful that have changed my life. Thich Nhat Hanh, one um, Pema Chodron, um, the books of Eckhart Tolle, I find very powerful. And um, when I when I study those books, um, I I had an insight when I lived in Germany that I could I was missing the the bridge like the so exactly how do I do this? You know, what does it mean to create space? What does it mean to disidentify from the ego? Like, 
what? <laughs> so I, my background at Accenture, I was highly trained in taking concepts and translating them into very practical um, learning objectives. And that training for years from some of the best people in instructional design and communication and so on, um, I think is, is really what happened is, is that I had that deep understanding of adult development, learning and development that I was doing in my day job, if you will, my professional career. And then I had a spiritual journey that I was on with mindfulness running alongside. And I thought, you know, my purpose in the world is going to be to be to work at the intersection of leadership development, learning, human development, and mindfulness, meditation, compassion, and contemplative science. So I, that's my sweet spot. That's my purpose. I founded a company called Purpose Blue, where we do this for um, universities, higher education, K through 12, and companies. Um, we're actually the partner for Deloitte across North America. We bring all these wisdom teachings to all levels of the company across the U.S. And that's what I found was my um, where I'm in flow and what I love to do. So National Geographic, um, fortunately for me, had a similar idea. <laughs> so they thought, you know, we want to do a book on mindfulness. We're, we're known for science. So we want a science-backed book on mindfulness because everyone's talking about mindfulness. But we don't want it to be a book that is organized around concepts. They didn't want a chapter on acceptance and a chapter on impermanence and a chapter on you know, meditation. They wanted a book that would be very practical and accessible to um, busy professionals, to people that have very full lives that are not going to go to Plum Village like I did. They're not going to go to a weekly meditation class or listen to Dharma talks like you and I like to do. Um, these are busy people and they're curious about mindfulness and they're feeling overwhelmed, but they want it translated very practical. So we came up with the concept of the day. So if we could take a day, starting with, you know, my first chapter that I thought of was wake up to joy. Like when my eyes open, if I was being mindful and compassionate, what would I be doing exactly? And then moving that through the morning, you know, when I'm showering, am I thinking about meetings that I've got coming up or can I actually open my senses, tune into the moment, feel the water on my body, smell the delicious rosemary mint shower gel, um, meet myself with kindness so that I actually emerge from the shower having a little meditation practice under my belt. Um, when I make my morning coffee, can I stop and actually smell the beans as I put them into the machine, which is an amazing smell, right? Stopping and smelling tasting the coffee as it, hit, it hits my lips. There are many, many ways throughout the day that we can integrate the skills and mindsets of mindfulness. So it's both skill and attitude. It's, it's, it's a skill in practice and a way of being. Can I look at a day and, and take all the research, all the years of practice, all the science, and map those into a day so that everyday people can say, oh, this is what it would mean to be mindful. I'm going to try this. I'm going to, I'm going to 
try to, in my next meeting, my next phone call, I'm going to practice paying attention with curiosity instead of paying attention with judgment or waiting until it's my turn to, te- to speak so I can get my point across. So I started to translate and the sections are home, you know, what you would do in the morning before you leave. Now the second section is work, which for many of us, we're still at home uh, when we're working in this pandemic. Um, but what does it look like, you know, when we get overwhelmed with a number of projects, what can we do? Um, how do we have difficult conversations? Um, how can we wrap up the day, which is very important now in the pandemic to wrap up the day and transition. So that's a key thing. And then there's a section on, on love, on relationships. Um, as you and I share a teacher, Jack Cornfield, you know, as he says, our, our real work is to, is to deepen our capacity for love. And so how can mindfulness help us in relationships and the very things that bring us joy and, and help us live a good life? And then I go into play. I don't think we think enough about play in our society. Um, what do we do with our leisure time? Can we bring deliberate attention to choosing, to choosing how we're going to use our day, um, how we're going to use our Saturday, uh, what brings us alive, what brings us joy, how do we create flow, how can we be more creative and invite, um, you know, kind of get in a place where we can write something or paint something or plant something or, or, or decorate a table for our loved ones. So um, those are some of the sections, homework, love, play, and then it goes back to home again. And that transition back into from work back into the environment that can be a sanctuary. I'm, I'm really into design and I'm a painter. I love art. And I'm, I'm, I really wanted to offer ways to curate your environment so that it, it, it nour- nourishes the soul. It, it nourishes people that you live with. Um, you can, you can declutter with intention. Uh, you can, you can, cook with the senses, eat with the senses. Thich Nhat Hanh taught my daughter how to drink tea, bringing a real deliberate attention to raising a cup, um, sipping tea, noticing the interconnection of the rain, the cloud in our tea, and, and really inviting connection with others. So I have a chapter on, on sipping tea and using tea as a mindfulness ceremony. And then, you know, we've got the, the end of the book um, addresses sleep, which is a major, major uh, challenge for so many people, as you know, in your practice. And, you know, we could open the newspaper and see just the challenges we're having with sleep. So I have two chapters out of the 50 on sleep and things we can do to cultivate a bedtime routine and cultivate habits and use mindfulness and compassion practices to help us ease into sleep. So I've really been delighted by um, the impact the book has had globally since it first came out in hard in hardcover in 2018 and in paperback last year. And then last year, uh, National Geographic turned it into a special edition National Geographic magazine. So the entire, you know, yellow bar magazine is the book. And that was just phenomenal. And they... They produced 300,000 and they sold out. So 
So I can't even get any new copies. I know. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm no, I'm hoping they. <laughs> that was the only magazine that was available in our house. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so the book keeps getting translated. And in fact, this year, um, the meditation app Insight Timer, um, actually in the fall, they invited me to turn the book into a 50-day course since there's 50 chapters. So it's 50 days to a mindful life. And that has been such a joy because when I, it was a lot of work to do that, a lot of time in the recording studio, um, but I love doing it and I needed it. It came at a time in my life when I needed to be back immersed in each of the chapters and the stories and the science. And I recorded, I wrote and recorded 50 guided meditations. So for every chapter, there's a unique guided meditation. And now there's almost 5,000 students in that class. We have a classroom on Insight Timer. And I go in and leave audio responses to their questions. And I'm getting to know folks. And it's so beautiful. And I'm learning more as they're sharing their stories and applications. And also in the time of COVID and a pandemic, um, this is, I did foresee that this course would launch during this time, but it's been a way for people to come together and practice 15 minutes a day uh, in the teachings that are in the book. So that's been really rewarding for, for me and, and hopefully serving a lot of people. Yeah, I, I saw that on Inside Timer. I highly recommend that to listeners. It's a really nice way because it can be a 50-day process. It just, it's a nice way to develop a routine without a huge time commitment. And, yeah. and to get to the place where these abstract ideas and the, and the thought of going to a silent retreat sounds horrible or it sounds they're confusing about, confused about it. A lot of people come around and some of the people mm-hmm. they're too busy for this. When they start to really settle into it, it is changing for so many people. My, my favorite um, chapter was on the sleep. And one thing mm. I used to do was make a cup of tea before bedtime as part of my bedtime routine, you know, establishing. And I had a bedtime routine, but I realized it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to calming myself down and wrapping up the day. It was sort of getting ready for the next day. And, you know, and so the couple oh, interesting sitting. And so it was lovely. Um, I wondered in your, in feedback, is, is there a favorite chapter or section or is there anything that people tend to comment more about? Gosh, I, it's such a good question, but um, it's really, really all over the place because um, and that's one of the things that I wrestled with National Geographic in the beginning. I said, you know, I can't, there's no formula. There's no one mindful day that's going to, you know, be the blueprint for everybody. Um, so I really wrestled with that. And, and then I wrote it in a way that create, created room for people because we're all different. So some people I get, I'm, I'm hearing from so many people that love the morning part. They've established a morning routine um, many people love walking meditation, which is something that I really share and they've never done that before. And they, they love being in nature and moving and moving meditation. Um, I'm finding a lot of traction with the sections on work, which is based on my work in, in corporations and teaching mindfulness to business. And I bring in a lot of examples and stories and I'm hearing from people that like, wow, I didn't. I didn't really know how to do this at work, shifted how I'm experiencing work. 
Um, and then the, the love, um, you know, writing about seeing your loved one with fresh eyes. We become very habituated to how we see people, especially those we're close to, and practicing the skills of mindfulness to see people with a freshness and a curiosity and a, and a kindness. Um, I've heard a lot about that. And then another, another key thing is that I do a lot about training and teaching how to cultivate a positive mind, how to offset our, the negativity bias that's part of our evolutionary biology by training with repetition how to see the good and savor and stop and take in the good, both individually and we do it in teams at the companies I work with. We do it in our home together as a family. So the positive outlook piece, strengthening a positive mind, um, is something I'm doing a lot of virtual workshops on now over Zoom with companies, just that piece. People really need it right now. But I, I've heard a lot um, from readers that that really impacted them. Yeah, that's great because I think it, I think you incorporate a lot of ways that you can find joy and pleasure through this. It's not so serious. It's not all about, yeah. you know, understanding the nature of suffering. Right, right. And, you know, I really um, credit that to Thich Nhat Hanh's approach. Um, so a lot of people, and I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a senior level certified teacher with the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. That's when I first started teaching mindfulness-based emotional intelligence globally. And a lot of what our early programs focused on, our two-day program, was about attention, awareness, and emotional regulation. You know, how do I focus and how do I deal with difficult emotions and how do I um, down-regulate? You know, I'm hijacked, I'm, I'm freaked out, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm scared. You know, how do I down-regulate? And and I, um, at, at Purpose Blue, I, I thought I need to develop a balanced curriculum that is not only about down-regulating and dealing with what's difficult and hard and, and our suffering, but up-regulating. How can I bring the same skill of attention to what's good, to, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls, the seeds of happiness that are available in every moment, no matter where we are, we can water the good seeds. So it became part of my mission in my work at Purpose Blue and in the book, The Mindful Day, to have that balance. And we worked hard uh, with National Geographic on the subtitle for The Mindful Day. And it was important for me that it said um, that it was about focus, calm, and joy. As he pointed out, it's not just about focus and calm. It's also about joy. And I think that goes back to where we started our conversation about loss um, and my mother. So I've had the loss of, of three, now four, immediate family members. And it's really important to me that we, we have a joyful, happy, playful life. It's not just that we survive but that we thrive and flourish. And my mom was so, she passed away in 2011, but she was so fun and so playful and, you know, dancing in the living room and laughing all the time. And I try to carry that on. And I passed that, those teachings on as well in the book and what she modeled for me, that we can deliberately and intentionally 
activate and release joy and unleash joy. So yeah, that's part of the book too. Yeah. And in, and in small ways throughout the day that don't require extra time, you're in the shower anyway, or you're drinking your tea and just change your approach. That's great. Yeah. So thank you for taking the time to share so much of this with us today. I'm wondering if you would um, tell us a little bit about what you have going on now, if you've got any new projects or what might Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'd love to share. Um, one of the things I'll be doing today and tomorrow is turning in a syllabus to the University of Maryland Smith School of Business for a new course. I've been teaching there for five years, mindful leadership, mindfulness, and compassion for leaders. But now I'm doing a new course called Adaptive Leadership and Resilience. So it will be about navigating and leading in uncertainty and change. So I've got to turn in the syllabus and pre-reads and I'll um, start teaching that in June and July this year for our course. So I'm excited about that. And um, I'm developing a new program for physicians, nurses, and frontline healthcare workers with my dear friend and uh, a professor who's a doctor, medical doctor, Trina Ulrich. So we've mapped that out on my front porch yesterday and we're really excited to put that into production. And um, and I'm, I'm, I love Instagram. So if you've got listeners that follow Instagram, I'm very visual and I like to share practices and teachings there. And I write on my newsletter. So if you go to my, my website, purposeblue.com, you can join my newsletter and you'll receive writings and stories and teachings that continue this inquiry of how we integrate mindfulness and compassion and joy in our everyday life. So those are some of the ways people can follow me and join me and you know receive a lot of free resources. I also developed with my team um, a, a resilience guide. We, we started off calling it like, the coronavirus survival guide, um, but now I'm calling it the resilience guide, and it's and it's and it's an in-depth, multi-page guide that has a lot of uh, tips and practices and links to really good websites um, to both navigate fear and uncertainty as well as amplify uh, joy and happiness, well-being, connection, community. So it works on both of those sides that you and I were talking about. So if, if your listeners would like that guide, they can send me an email at laurie at purposeblue.com, L-A-U-R-I-E at purposeblue.com. And I will have my team send them that guide. We'll get that out to them. Great. And so those are some of the things. And oh, of course, please join me in the Insight Timer 50 Days to a Mindful Life class. <laughs> going to get 10,000 in there. Oh, that'd be so fun. Yes. Yes. And I, I will put that information in the blog listing too. So if listeners want to go back and find out how to get a copy, that sounds fantastic. Okay, great. Everybody could use one, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, was, I was trying to figure out how to respond. You know, what can, what can I do and create in this very difficult time? So that was why the guide was created. Yeah. Again, I just... I read a lot of mindfulness books and I just, you know, as feedback for you, it's really nice that it's, it is really practical. It honors the whole, all of the concepts, the larger concepts, and it's very grounded. And I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's going to be, continue to be a great resource for a lot of readers. 
Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And I just um, just want to put my hand on my heart and just uh, share a loving kindness blessing for your your readers. Um, I just uh, invite them to take a few moments in stillness every day. It's walking outside, it's sitting in the backyard for a minute or on the edge of their bed and just take a few minutes to be with themselves. And this is a very traditional practice to do loving kindness. And I'll just share it right now. Um, May you be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy and strong. May you be safe and protected. And may you know that you are loved. So I just extend that out to everyone listening and to you and I together here on this podcast. Thank you. That was nice.